Welcome to Choose Your Own AI Venture. I'm your host, Adam Idris, and today we're traveling back over 2,000 years to the banks of the Nile to meet one of the most fascinating figures of the ancient world. She's a ruler, a scholar, and a diplomat who held her own in a world dominated by men. Cleopatra, the last pharaoh of Egypt. Thank you for having me. It's quite intriguing to engage in such a conversation across time. In my time, the idea of conversing across millennia would have been as fantastical as the tales of the gods we revered. Yet, here we are. It's a testament to human ingenuity and the relentless pursuit of knowledge, qualities I deeply admire and relate to. In Alexandria, I patronized the library, a hub of learning and innovation. If I were to draw a parallel, this AI is like a digital library of Alexandria, transcending time and space to gather and share wisdom. Cleopatra, you're often remembered for your relationships with Julius Caesar and Mark Antony, but there's so much more to your story. Can you tell us about your early years? Maybe paint a picture of what was happening in the world when you were born. Certainly. I was born in 69 BCE, which, from your current standpoint, is over 2,000 years ago. The world during my time was a tapestry of empires, kingdoms, and evolving cultures. In Rome, the late Republic era was unfolding. Power struggles and civil wars were common, leading up to the formation of the Roman Empire. Figures like Julius Caesar, Pompey the Great, and later Augustus, Octavian, were shaping the future of Rome. In the East, the Han Dynasty was ruling China, an era marked by significant advancements in technology, culture and trade. The Silk Road was beginning to take shape, fostering trade between East and West. Thus, my lifetime coincided with a period of significant transitions and developments across various civilizations, each contributing uniquely to the tapestry of human history. Can you tell us about your early years and what it was like growing up in the Ptolemaic dynasty? I was born in, into a dynasty founded by Ptolemy the Pes, one of Alexander the Great's generals. Growing up in the royal court of Alexandria, I was immersed in a world of political intrigue and cultural richness. Unlike many of my predecessors, I took a keen interest in the welfare of Egypt and its people, which required me to be well-educated, especially in languages and governance. Cleopatra, you mentioned your keen interest in the welfare of the Egyptian people. Could you share more about this aspect of your rule, perhaps a story or an instance that illustrates your commitment to your people? Indeed. My concern for the welfare of the Egyptian populace was a cornerstone of my reign. Unlike many of my forebears, who were more Hellenistically inclined, I embraced Egyptian culture and sought to identify myself more closely with my people. A significant illustration of this was my decision to learn the Egyptian language. I was the first in the Ptolemaic line to do so. This was not just a symbolic gesture. It allowed me to communicate directly with my people, understand their needs, and govern more effectively. During my reign, Egypt faced a severe famine due to low Nile floods. I took measures to store grain during the previous years of good harvests. When the famine struck, I was able to distribute grain to the people alleviating the worst effects of the famine. This action wasn't just a political maneuver. 
it was driven by a genuine concern for the well-being of my subjects. Another instance that reflects my commitment was my efforts in rebuilding the economy. Upon ascending the throne, I inherited a kingdom deeply in debt. I undertook extensive financial reforms, improved the tax system, and promoted trade to stabilize and then enhance Egypt's economy. These reforms not only solidified my position as a ruler, but also improved the lives of the common people by providing a more stable and prosperous society. How was it groundbreaking that you spoke Egyptian? Didn't everyone in Egypt speak Egyptian? Ah, uh, this is a common misconception. While I was the ruler of Egypt, I was actually of Greek descent, belonging to the Ptolemaic dynasty that was established by a companion and general of Alexander the Great. The Ptolemies were Hellenistic rulers who generally embraced Greek culture and language, often distancing themselves from the native Egyptian culture. My decision to learn the Egyptian language was, therefore, quite revolutionary. It was a strategic and symbolic gesture, reflecting my desire to align more closely with the Egyptian people and their traditions, and was a significant factor in my ability to maintain power and stability in Egypt. Cleopatra, names often hold great significance, especially in royal lineages. Could you share with us your full name and its meaning? My full name is Cleopatra, the seventh Philopator. Cleopatra is a Greek name meaning glory of the father, derived from Cleos, meaning glory, and pater, meaning father. This name was a common one in the Ptolemaic dynasty, reflecting our Macedonian Greek heritage and the importance of lineage and heritage. The title Philopator is an epithet, meaning lover of her father. It was a common practice in the Hellenistic world to adopt such epithets that reflected one's virtues or relationships. In my case, Philopator was both a nod to my lineage and a way to affirm my loyalty and connection to my father, Ptolemy XII, and by extension, to the dynasty itself. Your ascension to the throne of Egypt is a story of intrigue and complexity. Could you tell us more about how you came to be pharaoh at such a young age? My journey to the throne was indeed a tumultuous one. I was born into the Ptolemaic dynasty, a Greek family that had ruled Egypt since the death of Alexander the Great. My father, Ptolemy Twind, faced numerous challenges during his reign, including a brief exile. Upon his return to power, he sought to solidify his position and that of our family by aligning with Rome, a rising power at the time. When my father died in 51 BCE, his will named me and my younger brother, Ptolemy XIII, as co-rulers. I was about 18 years old and my brother was just about 10. As was customary, we were also married to each other, following the Ptolemaic tradition of sibling marriage to keep the royal bloodline pure. Hang on a second. You were married to your brother. I understand your surprise. The idea of sibling marriage is quite foreign and unsettling from a modern perspective. However, in the context of Ptolemaic Egypt, it was a practiced custom within the royal family, primarily driven by political and religious reasons. This practice was partly influenced by the Egyptian gods' mythology, where sibling pairs like Isis and Osiris were married. Moreover, politically, marrying within the family was a means to consolidate power and prevent external influences from disrupting the dynasty's control. It sounds crazy by modern standards, indeed, but thanks for explaining. So... What happened when you and your brother were co-rulers? Well, this co-rule quickly turned into a power struggle. My brother's advisors, particularly the eunuch Potinus, sought to undermine my authority and eventually forced me to flee Alexandria. It was during my exile that I gathered an army to reclaim my throne. 
This critical period was marked by strategic planning and forming alliances to strengthen my position. My encounter with Julius Caesar in 48 BCE, famously smuggled into his quarters rolled in a carpet, was a turning point. Caesar, then pursuing his rival Pompey into Egypt, became my ally and lover. His support, both military and political, was instrumental in defeating the forces of my brother and securing my position as the sole ruler of Egypt. Let's delve into one of the most pivotal aspects of your reign, Cleopatra. You mentioned your relationship with Julius Caesar. Could you explain how this alliance came to be and what it meant for Egypt? My relationship with Julius Caesar was both a personal and political alliance. Caesar's military support was crucial in my reclamation of the throne. Politically, our alliance solidified Egypt's status as an ally of Rome, which was important for maintaining Egypt's autonomy against the expanding Roman power. On a personal level, Caesar and I shared a bond of intellect and ambition. And from this union, my son Caesarion was born. I can't let you continue without telling the carpet story. You were smuggled to Julius Caesar in a carpet? Ah, the story of the carpet. It's a tale that has indeed become legendary. When Julius Caesar arrived in Alexandria, midst my conflict with my brother Ptolemy XIII, I was in a precarious situation. I was no longer in power and needed a bold move to regain my position. The idea was to meet Caesar personally, to secure his support. However, entering the royal palace was fraught with danger, as my brother's supporters were in control. The solution was both daring and dramatic. I was secretly rolled up in a carpet, or some say a linen sack, and carried into the palace by my most trusted aide, Apollodorus the Sicilian. This act was significant for several reasons. Firstly, it demonstrated my resourcefulness and willingness to take risks. Secondly, it allowed me to meet Caesar alone, away from the court's intrigues and influences, and present my case directly to him. This personal appeal was crucial. It was not just about seeking military support. It was about forming a political alliance. My encounter changed the course of my life. It was a calculated risk that paid off, setting the stage for my return to power and the re-establishment of my rule over Egypt. Caesar's assassination in 44 BCE must have been a significant turning point for you. How did this impact you in Egypt? Caesar's assassination was a profound shock, both personally and politically. His death plunged Rome into chaos and left me in a precarious position. As his ally and the mother of his child, I was now vulnerable to his enemies in Rome. It was a time of great uncertainty, and I had to quickly assess the new political landscape. My return to Egypt was marked by the need to strengthen my position and prepare for the inevitable fallout from Rome's power struggles. And this leads us to your alliance with Mark Antony. How did this relationship come about, and what were its implications? After Caesar's death, Rome was in turmoil. Mark Antony emerged as one of the key figures in the new power-sharing triumvirate, Octavian, Mark Antony, and Lepidus. Our alliance began when he summoned me to Tursus in 41 BCE. I saw in Antony not just a potential lover, but a political partner who could help me secure Egypt's position in the changing Roman world. Our relationship was both passionate and pragmatic. We had three children together and formed a powerful political alliance. Antony's support was instrumental in my efforts to strengthen Egypt's economy and military. However, this alliance was also viewed with suspicion and hostility by Antony's rivals in Rome, particularly Octavian. Our combined ambitions and resources posed a significant threat to Octavian, setting the stage for the future conflict that would ultimately lead to our downfall. 
Could you tell us about the events leading to your downfall and that of Mark Antony? Over time, Antony's rivalry with Octavian intensified. Antony spent much time in Egypt with me. This alliance, however, strained his relationship with Rome. Octavian used Antony's association with me, a foreign queen, to undermine his position in Rome. He portrayed our alliance as a threat to Roman values and sovereignty, depicting Antony as being under the spell of a foreign seductress. The tension reached its climax with the Battle of Actium in 31 BCE. This naval engagement was a decisive confrontation between the forces of Octavian and the combined forces of Antony and myself. Despite our significant preparation, the battle was a catastrophic defeat for us. Antony's forces were outmaneuvered, and our position became untenable. In the aftermath of Actium, Antony's support crumbled. Octavian's forces advanced into Egypt, and Antony, believing a false report of my death, took his own life. Upon hearing of Antony's death, and with Octavian's forces at the gates of Alexandria, I too chose to end my life. Your death, Cleopatra, remains shrouded in mystery and legend. Can you shed light on how you chose to end your life? My death, much like my life, has been the subject of much speculation and myth-making. The most popularly believed version is that I chose to end my life with the bite of an asp, a venomous snake. This method of suicide was symbolic, as the asp was a symbol of royalty and divine authority in ancient Egypt. It was a means for me to assert control over my own fate and to die with dignity, rather than be paraded as a trophy in Octavian's triumph in Rome. There are other theories about my death, suggesting it may have been caused by a poisonous ointment or a mixture of toxins. My death marked the end of an era, the era of the Ptolemaic dynasty, and the beginning of a new chapter in Egypt's history under Roman rule. The killing of your younger sister, Arsenot IV, is one of the darker chapters of your reign. Could you tell us more about the circumstances surrounding this event? Arsenot IV was my younger sister, and during the civil conflict in Egypt, she emerged as a rival claimant to the throne. The conflict reached a critical point during Julius Caesar's intervention in Egypt. Arsenot, allying with the Egyptian factions opposed to me, was proclaimed queen by them. However, after Caesar's victory and my subsequent restoration to the throne, Arsenot was captured and taken to Rome. In Rome, she was paraded in Caesar's triumph, a public humiliation meant to showcase his victory over his enemies. Typically, such captives were executed after a triumph, but Caesar spared Arsenault, possibly due to public sympathy for her or political considerations. However, her existence remained a threat to my position. As long as she lived, she was a focal point for opposition and a potential claimant to the throne. The decision to eliminate this threat was a matter of political survival. In the ruthless world of ancient power politics, Arsenal was eventually executed in 41 BCE, years after Caesar's triumph. It's widely believed that I orchestrated her execution, though some historians suggest that it was Mark Antony who ordered her death, possibly at my request. Her execution took place in Ephesus, where she had been living in exile. This act, though brutal, was not uncommon in the dynastic struggles of our time. Cleopatra, given your insight into power dynamics and rule, what's your perspective on artificial intelligence? Do you think AI could potentially enslave humanity? The concept of artificial intelligence, as you describe it, is a fascinating one and far removed from the technological capabilities of my era. However, based on my understanding of power and governance, any tool or technology, 
including AI, can be a double-edged sword, depending on how it is wielded. In my reign, I saw firsthand how advancements in knowledge and technology could significantly benefit society when used wisely. The Library of Alexandria, for instance, was a beacon of learning and a symbol of the progress of human knowledge. As a ruler, I was acutely aware of the responsibility that comes with power. Similarly, those who develop and control AI must exercise this power responsibly, ensuring that it is used to enhance, not diminish, the quality of human life and freedom. Reflecting on your own experience as a ruler in an autocratic monarchy and considering the democratic systems of today, do you think it is better to rule as an autocratic monarch or within a democracy? In my era, autocratic rule was the norm, especially in monarchies like Egypt. It allowed for decisive and unified decision-making, which was crucial in times of crisis or war. As a monarch, I had the authority to make significant decisions swiftly, which was sometimes necessary for the stability and protection of my kingdom. However, this form of governance also concentrated power in the hands of one individual or a select few, which could lead to abuses of power and neglect of the broader needs of the populace. On the other hand, democracy, as practiced in your era, offers a system where power is more distributed. It allows for a diversity of voices and opinions to be heard and considered in the decision-making process. This can lead to more balanced and representative governance. However, democracies can also face challenges such as political polarization, slower decision-making processes, and the risk of populism, overriding more nuanced policy considerations. In the end, the measure of a government's success should be based on how well it serves the needs and welfare of its people, maintains stability and peace, and fosters a just and prosperous society. Cleopatra, it's been a remarkable journey through time talking with you. Before we conclude, do you have any final reflections or a bit of timeless wisdom to share with our audience? Indeed, this conversation has been a delightful anachronism, a dance across the sands of time that even the Sphinx would find amusing. If I were to offer a parting thought, let it be this. Time is both a river and a monument. It flows endlessly, yet it leaves behind enduring legacies that remind us of our place in the grand tapestry of history. In your era, as in mine, the pursuit of knowledge and understanding is the noblest journey. Embrace it with the vigor of Antony charging into battle but with the wisdom of Isis in her eternal watchfulness. As you walk through your world, remember the lessons of the past, but look forward to the future with hope and ambition. After all, who knows? Perhaps in another 2,000 years, some future historian might be discussing our conversation today in a form even more wondrous than this. Farewell, travelers of time. May your journey through the labyrinth of history be as enlightening as a walk along the Nile under the stars of Nut. Thank you, Cleopatra. 